we're going to spend a couple of weeks here in the book of Revelation. And there are lots of things in the book of Revelation that are cryptic. They're hard for you and I to get. But the, I would submit to you, they were not hard for the original recipients to get. Okay? And my example is, in fact, I asked the question in, um, in kind of the opening paragraph here. Uh, by the way, one of, my, one of my valued books in my library is a book by Dr. Lily McCutcheon, who was on the board of our, uh, of our institution for a while. And uh, we, have a, we have a residence hall named after her. And uh, Dr. McCutcheon wrote a book years ago called The Symbols Speak, where she's trying to unpack some of these symbols. But my, my submission to you is, my, my uh, idea for you is, if you were, if you were the in the original group who received the book of Revelation, okay, uh, there would be imagery there that you would get just like these kids got that Eleven really likes. Okay. For instance, in their day, in the day, in John's day, when this was originally written, if somebody said, today the White House said, John would look at you and say, the houses can't talk. But everyone in here understands that when the president speaks or one of his, uh, one of his spokespersons, uh, they might say, well, the White House today said, and we fully understand that imagery, don't we? Okay. Uh, in Oklahoma City, we certainly understand um, the thunder lost Friday night. What? Even 10 years ago, that was not an image that you and I would have caught. But we now know about the, the NBA franchise basketball team called the Oklahoma City Thunder. We're all pretty interested in that. We're all pretty bummed out about Friday night. But 2,000 years ago, or even 10 years ago, that was not a common reference that anyone would understand. We do now. Um, uh, if I, I was reading an article earlier this week talking about what's going on, uh, how creative Silicon Valley is. Now that conjures up 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago or more, that would conjure up. Now, what? The valley is making stuff? What's that about? It, you, it, but now we fully, if you hear somebody quoting, Silicon Valley did this, you know we're talking about that high-tech environment out there out of which so many um, uh, cutting-edge things come, right? You got one of your own that we understand now but wouldn't have been understood a few years ago or, or a lot of years ago? Are you following me? Okay, let's talk a little bit now about the book of Revelation because we're going to be there for a, for a few weeks here. A lot of theories exist as to how Revelation should be interpreted. Uh, some people believe it's prophetic of future events. Some believe that it's a panorama of church history. Uh, some believe it's, it's unpacking the end times. Um, some believe that Revelation is symbolically speaking of people and events from the first century, mainly those linked with the Roman Empire. Still others think that Revelation is entirely symbolic, a story that portrays the timeless struggle of good versus evil. And I'm not in a position to fight anybody over any of those, whatever your, your interpretation of it was. 
Miss Carroll made an assignment to me to read part of a book over the weekend because we're wanting to give a book out as a premium that I just had to make sure it didn't have any funny references, and I don't think it does, although I'm going to have one of the real theologians read some of it. So, um, uh, Because we don't want to, because there's so many different views of these things, we don't want to ostracize anybody in, because we're presenting one particular view, all right? even though we all have our own view. Now, whatever your view, there are some important details about Revelation that should be kept in mind while you study the book. One concerns the historical setting of the book. The Apostle John was exiled on the barren island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea because of his loyalty to Jesus and because he was, a, he was an eyewitness to the resurrection and to the life of Jesus. He just was a problem to the government. And so um, he had been a part of the church of Ephesus, which was part of Turkey in those days. And uh, one of the churches that Jesus addresses in the first part of the book of Revelation, it's most prob, but he is sent into exile on this island. He is elderly when he's sent. Probably the time of the writing of this book is somewhere in the 90s, in the AD 90 to 96 range. Late in the century, and certainly late for a fellow who's probably born toward the beginning of the century. Um, uh, I, I find that really intriguing and a, and a great study. This is a guy who was banished probably in his 80s. He may have been as, as, as late as 90 years old himself. He must have been a tireless and effective preacher if he caused that much trouble. Now, we need to remember that... Um, the book is a narrative, a story told by, by a narrator. It doesn't mean it's a fictional story. It just means that the best way to read Revelation then is as a story with various scenes that are all kind of interconnected, but sometimes it's kind of hard to find the interconnection. The primary overall message of the book is that despite how intense the opposition is to God's people, in the end, they triumph, God triumphs, and evil is vanquished. So with that as a backdrop, I want us to get into chapter 4. We're going to be in chapter 5 next week. I want us to get into chapter 4, and I want us to read a little bit of this. Let's start with the first couple of verses. Miss Sally, can I get you to read the first two verses of Revelation 4 to get us kicked off? After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Okay, now, here's the picture. John is he's writing about, he's describing, he's narrating what he sees in this vision. And what he sees, um, even back in the Old Testament, a couple of references in the Old Testament, there are references to heaven being like a vault. Like a vault, closed. You can't see in it, you can't get there. With that kind of a thought behind it, then um, um, in this vision, access to the door of that vault is opened to John. That's the word that goes in your first blank. It's open, somehow open. I see an open door, and, and he's allowed to enter in. Um, and there's a trumpet voice, uh, this beautiful trumpet voice. It's mentioned from chapter 1 on out that when... when um, 
the voice from heaven speaks, it's like it's brilliant and clear like a trumpet. And it's occurring here. And it says to him, come up here and see what's going on. Come to heaven and see. I love the thought that one of the voices of God here is beckoning to you and me, not just to John. Come. That, that word is really important in the Bible, certainly in the New Testament and all the Bible. Um, I think of Matthew 11, the last three verses of Matthew 11, where, where uh, Jesus says, Come ye who, you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But the first word of, the, of Matthew 11 to 8 is the word come. And here he's inviting John to come and look, and he's inviting you and I, when this life is all finished, to come and live there in heaven. Come. I, I started a, a wedding years and years ago. It's actually kind of a kind of a military wedding. It was beautiful, and I started it with uh, with the uh, couple having coached me on what they wanted me to say. And I used a passage also from Revelation that began by saying, "The Spirit and the Bride say, Come." That was my first words in this grand event, and it just kind of captures your attention. Come. That's the invitation John is given here. And it's the invitation that you and I are given as well in some ways. Now, the throne is depicted in verse 2, central in this picture. All right? Uh, what you need to think about, I think, when you think of the, of the throne, uh, I'm looking back at Mike Stewart. Mike Stewart, what you need to understand here is, is the voice is saying court is in session. That makes sense to a lawyer? Court is in session, all right? Uh, there's a throne room, but this is a royal court um, where judgments are made. Uh, and and an, a throne here is symbolic in the scriptures, okay, if we're going to unpack some of these symbols. The throne room is, or the throne is symbolic of power or authority, power. And there is someone sitting on that throne. You need to probably discover who that is, right? Whoever it is, it's a place of pomp and authority. Now, I want you to go back a few pages to Acts 25. There is a picture here of Paul's trial. Court is in session, okay? It begins with great pomp with a king, a royalist, walking in the room, who's going to make a judgment. But I want, to hear you, I want you to hear the description of the kind of the pomp of this moment. In Acts 25, verse 23, I'm going to read just that. It, it's uh, King Agrippa, who's kind of a local magistrate. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice, that's his wife, uh, might be his sister, sorry, amid great pomp, there's that word, and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. You catch that just a lot of, you know, there's probably trumpets blaring. There's, there, there are all kinds of color involved in this because the king walks in the room. And when he gets in the room, everybody waits for him to do what he's going to do. And it's a big, almost hushed moment when he sits on the throne. 
It is a, a moment of great power and great pomp. That's the picture that you need to see here from heaven that John sees is someone is sitting on that throne in a place of authority. Court is in session. Who, who do you and I believe that is? God himself. Jesus is depicted by this time at, at the Father's right hand. But the throne room of God is depicted here as being central to heaven. Now, the, now the, the, um, the description of it continues. Cindy, could you read three down to six? Now, I didn't use Steve today because he's still kind of puny, and we didn't want to get him coughing. So uh, three down to six. Now, does it say that the, the one sitting on the throne, and by the way, if your Bible's like mine, it says in verse 3, and he who is sitting on the throne, and the word he is capitalized. Is yours at all like that? Okay, you read, if you're reading NIV, it may not be. But in mine, it capitalizes the, word, the pronoun he. That probably is an indicator of this is, this is divine. This is uh, God the Father. So he who's sitting on the throne... Does the Bible say here, does John's vision, his description of his vision, does it say, and God was made out of rubies and jasper? No. It says, what I saw looked like. There's a lot in this section of scripture where John just doesn't have the words to describe what's going on. And so he uses the words he knows. And say, well, it's, it's like, a, it, it's so radiant, and beautiful. It's like a finely polished ruby, but that doesn't really cover it. So he kind of uses this expression um, here, and he he's seeing here, here's what to put in your blanks, he's seeing here both the familiar and the gloriously unknown at the same time. He sees some things that he thinks, okay, that's, that's like a rainbow, but it's like it's made out of emerald. It's, it's gleaming green. Not like a rainbow he's ever seen. So he, he sees something kind of familiar, but it's gloriously unfamiliar at the same time. You catch that? And he's using uh, language that, that's at his disposal, but it really doesn't completely describe what he's seen. He just uses the best words he can use. My understanding is that the famed Tower of London uh, protects the crown jewels of uh, the British Empire, the national treasures of the United Kingdom, Monarchy, uh, the centuries-old collection that's, that's uh, guarded over there and protected there includes the queen's crown that's glistening with, get this, 2,800 diamonds. And that's just for a start. Um, uh, 
It's also adorned with an impressive array of emeralds and rubies and sapphires for the royal regalia still in use today for uh, notable national ceremonies. She doesn't wear it very often. Uh, Rhonda and I were talking on the way in today. She's wearing my mom's pearls today. And I said, well, you know, Barbara Bush didn't wear real pearls. Remember that story that came out last weekend? I didn't know that. I knew she always had pearls on, but they were fake. Uh, so the king doesn't wear this to go to the grocery store. Okay, he didn't wear this 2800 all right? The, the queen doesn't. So uh, these are elaborate and beautiful and wonderful. They're regal. But John implies here that the majesty of the king of kings far outshines any gemstone ever seen. No natural or mad-made jewel will ever measure up to the stunning wonder of God and our eternal home someday. He just uses the only words that he can describe. And he will say at times, uh, this falls short, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe it the only way I know how. So, God is there. Jesus is there. Now, in verse 4, there are other thrones. How many? 24, interesting number. We'll talk about that in a second. They're not the size or the grandeur of the central throne of God. Kind of obviously, right? But they're there, and they're occupied by uh, what is described as 24 elders here in this scene. Um, uh, now, um, this is a, but this is a throne, not a chair they're sitting in. So we know that there's some regal nature to who these people are, but not like the king of kings, the lord of lords. Some um, subservient um, uh, authority or glory. They're called elders, not princes. Uh, we think probably because of the description of them, and I want you to look at the description there in verse 4, that they are religious rulers because of the way they're dressed and the way their dress is described. Now, I want you to, to kind of stay right here for just a minute, all right? Um, and then I want you to um, look at... Um, Seven. So go, if your Bible's like mine, just go one page to the right. Somebody read verse 13 and 14 from 7. It's important that we know how the elders were dressed. Somebody? 13 and 14 of chapter 7. Okay, so it's going to help us identify them. Um, by the way, why 24? Well, it may have to do with that there were 12 tribes in the Old Testament, so that may represent the leaders of the Old Testament. And there are 12 apostles or disciples in the New Testament, and so it may be symbolic of the coming together of the Old and New Testaments in this heavenly scene. Okay, think about that for just a minute. Whoever it is, these are important people. And, and seven describes them as being uh, gone through a tough time and uh, uh, more than we can even understand. And here they are 
in some kind of splendor of their own, but we're going to describe what they feel about, we're going to see described what they feel about that splendor in, in just a moment. What I've got to catch here is they're wearing robes, and what do the robes look like? They're white. They've been washed in, in an interesting uh, metaphorical imagery. They are washed, they washed their bloods, their robes and the blood of the lamb, and they came out gleaming white. Now, I just love that. Uh, made me go to an old hymn book. I have a hymn book collection in my study. And uh, I picked them up from all over the country. And um, this one is uh, a song that's written by somebody that Church of God people will recognize. His name was Barney Warren. Um, wrote lots and lots of Church of God songs. Probably my favorite to read in some ways. But he wrote, he wrote a song that, interesting, Lorinda told me this morning, uh, was sung at her grandmother's funeral, who was not Church of God, but, but uh, Brother Warren was known outside of the Church of God anyway. It's called Beautiful. And just listen to the description. It's kind of a description of heaven. Beautiful robes so white. There we go. Beautiful land of light. Beautiful home so bright. By the way, if you were raised Presbyterian, you probably don't know this song. Okay? You, you're not humming it now. I am. All right. Um, Where there shall come no night, beautiful crown I'll wear, shining with stars or there, yonder, yonder in mansions fair, gather us there. And then in quartet fashion, uh, the, the uh, refrain, beautiful robes, beautiful land, uh, beautiful robes of white, beautiful land of light, beautiful home so bright, beautiful band of might, beautiful, beautiful crown, shining, yes, shining so fair, beautiful mansion bright, gather us there, yes, gather us there. I couldn't help but think of that earlier this week as I was, as I was listening to this description. What a wonderful thing to be invited to. What a great description John gives us. And others have tried since then. Now, let's go to, um, let's, let's go to verse uh, 5. So these 24 thrones are occupied by elders who are robed in white. That's a symbol of salvation. They've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. All right? Illumin, illumining this throne room are, is uh, peals of lightning and thunder but even a more organized light source described as seven lamps. Now, uh, the only thing I would say about that is these lamps must be perfect. There's a lot of references in the book of Revelation and other places to the number seven, and when it's mentioned, it always kind of indicates perfection or wholeness or, per or uh, something that's perfect. So we've got the idea here, that whatever these lamps are, they're perfect. This is not talking about any kind of division at all. It's just kind of describing the splendor around the throne. And then in verse 6, it talks about a sea in front of the throne. Look at, look at this description of the sea. Now, what I want you to catch here is this very wonderful, beautiful throne room is vast. If there's a sea in there, it must be pretty big, right? I'm not talking about a swimming pool. What is the description of the sea? 
a sea of glass. Now, glass in this age indicated purity, pure as glass. But when it says uh, a sea of glass here, it's talking about purity, but it's also talking about calmness. You ever been on a lake where it's just calm as glass? Okay. Now, go with me to 21.1, just a few pages to your right. In another description of heaven, same guy, same setting, I saw a new heaven, and verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there is no longer any what? See. What I want you to think about there is there's a description here. Uh, it's, it's ramping up, leading up to the end of time. And what John is going to see at the end of his vision is that when the king comes again, there will be no more sea. Now, this is not talking about, I, I, I hesitate to even bring this up because Rhonda really loves to go to the beach. It doesn't mean that you can't go to the beach in heaven. It means that sea, the gulf, if you will, that separates you and I from God will be gone away. No more sea. I can walk right up to the throne. That's kind of a wow moment for me. I don't know about you. Because I want to go right up to, to God the Father and to Jesus who was standing at his right and said, I have waited all my life for this. I just want to know you. I want to see you. Uh, you know, no more sea. There's no more separation here, okay? The sea is calm. I was talking with some friends at the art festival last night. My friend David has lost, lost both of his parents within days of each other right around Christmas time. And uh, I, in an unexpected description of that, his mother's been sick for a long time, but his dad died first. Um, she has been unaware of much for a while. And he looked at me, kind of with a waver in his voice, and he said, Dad called her home. They both had tremendous faith. Uh, I wouldn't got to challenge him and say, the Lord called her home. But, but I do think of that imagery when I think of, of the two bushes who were so... Um, uh, uh, so tied to each other. Don't you know that she is calling Bush 41 home along with Jesus one of these days? Isn't that just a wonderful picture? There's no more seed, no more separation. I love that thought. Now, let's go to verse 7, and let's finish this up. We've got about six minutes. Let's finish this up. Chapter 4, um, and we're going to read um, verse 7 through 11. So now I want you to catch here. There's some strange things here, all right? The first creature was, uh, I'm in five, sorry. And the angel of the Lord, uh, I gotta get in the right chapter. Somebody got the right verse, seven, four, seven? It describes the, these creatures. 
first creature was like a lion, the second creature like, like a calf, the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the fourth living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around them within, and day and night they don't cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Now let's unpack this a little bit. These pretty strange looking worship, these are worship leaders in heaven. What's the description of them? Strange. Uh, if you look elsewhere, they've got uh, they got six wings. They got you know, eyes all around their head. They got eyes under their wings. You know, okay, um, all that description is really really interesting. Um, they're not quite human, not quite angels. They're different. They got all these eyes. They're watching the earth. To them, nothing is hidden, but that's not their real role. Their role is to lead heaven in worship, to sing to and about God. Why holy and then another holy and then the third holy? Anybody ever had a thought about that? Cindy? He's holy, he's holy. Do you get it? He's holy. Yeah, yeah. It could be a reference, and I really like that description. It could be a reference to making sure all three of the, of the members of the Trinity are caught. Listen to the first couple of verses of Isaiah 6. Another picture of worship in heaven. Listen how they sync up. In the year of Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe, filling the temple, Seraphim, that's angels, stood above him, each having six wings. Hmm, interesting. Uh, with two, he covered his face, two, he covered his feet, two, he flew, and one called out to the other and said, guess what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isn't it interesting that Isaiah gets a picture of heaven and John gets a picture of heaven, and interestingly, they're the same picture. From, what, seven, eight hundred years apart. This is what's going on in heaven. And these stranger things are the worship leaders of heaven. And they're singing only of the holiness of God. Now, look at verse 9. They're going to say here, who is to be the recipient of this worship? When the living creatures, that's those guys with all the wings and all the eyes, when they give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. Who is to be the recipient of that worship? God alone. Nobody other than, nobody but him. I, it's difficult for us in this entertainment-saturated culture. It's difficult for us when uh, the Crossing Choir Orchestra or, or Josh or Sandy or Larry, you know, when they sing something that just stirs us to our soul and we jump to our feet and applaud, we need a be careful here who we're applauding. 
Worship is for the glory of God alone. The picture of heaven is this mighty, awesome, wonderful scene. And it's designed for the glory of God alone. The title Almighty here emphasizes God's, emphasizes God's omnipotence. By the way, the strange worship leaders sing of God's holiness. That's what goes in that line. That line. Uh, God's omnipotence. He's all-powerful. The Greek behind this title occurs 10 times in the New Testament, nine of which are in the book of Revelation. The Lord God Almighty. In, um, in 2 Samuel, the, the language is translated the Lord God Almighty. In, um, in Exodus 3, it's translated God Almighty. And in the book of Charles Stanley, it's translated the Old Mother God. If you listen to Charles Stanley, he talks a lot about Almighty God. So, okay, however you want it, this is him. The one, only one worthy of, of worship here for God alone. And what they do in verse 10 is very interesting. The 24 elders get up from their thrones and what do they do? They first fall down. And then they worship. By the way, the, the word for worship there is the word fall down. Proskuneo, to prostrate myself. I just said the wrong word. To prostrate myself. Sorry. Guys, sorry. You can tell I'm getting older. They fall down at his feet in worship. And then they do something really interesting. What do they do? Sally, say it again. They, lay down their they take the crown that they've been given and they lay it at the foot of God and of the Lamb. By the way, one uh, writer, one preacher uh, depicts this scene in heaven as the four and twenty elders casting down their crowns and, and Jesus places it back on their heads forever in this dance of the uh, no Lord, holy, holy, holy. We, and they put a, they get the crowns back. Uh, by the way, there's a, a really popular, good Christian group uh, writing a lot of good, uh, good Christian music called Casting Crowns. That's from this reference here. Look at the last verse and we'll go. These words comprise a concise lesson on the nature of God, uh, of, of, of worship of God. Worthiness of God alone to receive worship. Glory and honor are his alone. And then in verse 11, it answers the why question. Why is he the only one worthy of worship? Because he made it all. You know, I think back to our reference of Silicon Valley, and there are times when uh, we'll read about some new gadgets coming out of there. And this is going to be better than anything yet. I can't imagine that in my pocket I carry a powerful computer it's part of my, th my phone. I, I just can't imagine that. Uh, but every once in a while, uh, Silicon Valley will come out with something that's even better and usually even more expensive. Can I tell you something? In the light of this imagery of the Lord God who made it all, any of these things are only toys by comparison. He made it. He sustains it. And he deserves praise because of having made it all. This concise lesson here. 